0: Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Thank you for coming on a long weekend, Columbus Day weekend. Thank you for being here. Maybe I'm not supposed to have to thank you for coming to church, but I do anyway. You may notice in the bulletin that it says that the Reverend Tom Hendricks will be delivering the message this morning. Uh, If it is bad, then uh, I am indeed the Reverend Tom Hendricks. So uh, uh, my name is Matt Lominick, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, Tom and his family are away for the weekend and uh it's just really an honor to be here. I'm going to tell you I got up here I I am nervous this morning. I and I am not a I don't get nervous in front of people. In fact, I don't get nervous enough. Like maybe I should get more nervous than I do. Uh I I uh, I have been nervous this morning. I was nervous sitting there. My hands are clammy. I'm looking at the sheet and we're ticking off the songs and I see me me coming and the reason is because I've been in this passage all week. And if you did your personal worship this week And you got into Matthew 5, verses 17 through 48. I don't know. You have got to come here this morning with a thousand questions. And uh, I I don't know if you're like me, but I just spent this week just sobered by this passage. Just, you, you know, painted into a corner as Jesus revealed one after the other what it means to be truly, truly faithful to him in these huge areas of life. And just one after the other, as I read them, I just thought, oh, I have settled in so many things. I am a sinner. Like, I knew that up here, but this week, Jesus just reached into my heart and he just one thing after another picked it up, you know, picked things up and went, well, what's this? And what's this? And what's this? And so I come before you this morning, my brothers and sisters, as one of you. And together we'll sit down and we will look at his word and we'll discern for ourselves what he would teach all of us. Um, in this text, and actually, with that in mind, I want to pray, I want to pray again because you know I'm already almost a wreck, so let's pray, Lord Jesus, I confess everything to you. I confess the things i don't even no need confessing I, I, I take this this scripture. This light that you've put on my soul and called out all the darkness, and I, I just humble myself before you. I'm so grateful that your sacrifice is greater, so much greater than my sin, or else I would be ruined. So, Father, we pray for all of us that you would bring us today as uh, beggars who found bread, and that you'd make that bread rich in our mouths and plentiful that we might share it with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, if you read this text this week, if you got into your personal worship, you know that this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Last week, Tom talked about the Beatitudes. And um, he described what the Beatitudes were and they were what they were not. What they were not was a description of eight different kinds of people and how they get blessed. Okay, the humble, they get blessed this way. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they get blessed that way. But rather, they were, the Beatitudes are, a description of what a person looks like who is living as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is, is in you and working through you? He They described a person. So the question is, what's going on this week in this passage? Um, is this just simply a list of Jesus' affirmations of the law of the Old Testament? Or is it more than that? Well, I think it is that. I think it's certainly Jesus reinforcing and reaffirming the law of Scripture. But it's similar to what it was last week. This is a principle that Jesus is unfolding, that he's giving six examples for. It is a principle about what it's like to live in this new community. Whereas last week was about the nature and character of a person living in the kingdom, this week is about the nature and character of the community, the ethic, the culture the way of life that we live, this new city in which we live, what's it like to live here? What's the ethic that drives it? Because here's the deal. When you ask Jesus into your heart, you receive a promise for eternal life, right? You know this. Uh, Matthew or uh, um, John 3.16, right? It says he loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have, uh, would have eternal life. And we tend to think that what that means is I have a life that will go on forever with God. And that is the promise. The promise is for an eternal life that your soul will continue in fellowship with God. But it's more than that. And it's what Jesus is talking about today. He's talking about life in this kingdom and what it's like. He didn't just give you eternal life. He gave you a life that is at its core eternal. It is in its nature an eternal way of living. It's a life that's creative and sustainable and productive and beautiful now, right now. And he says that you can and that you should and that you must live a life eternal now. Even in this broken world amidst broken people. This is the vision that Jesus has for his Sermon on the Mount. It is for the norms of kingdom life, the life for which we're all being prepared. The reason that I didn't stay huddled in the corner hemmed in this week is because of the one delivering the words that we're going to study today, because he stood as he gave these words As the promise and the hope and the fulfillment that they would come true. And that one day, those who followed him and knelt before him would live this way. It was a promise. That in Jesus Christ, this isn't just something we can aspire to. This isn't just something we can hope for. That if we work really hard by our own strength, we'll build this beautiful life. This is the promise that it's happening, that it's coming to, that it's moving toward its consummation. And so with Jesus' words in this passage, there is life. And with this passage is the message that we live now as citizens of the eternal kingdom to come. We don't wait till we die to start. So with that in mind, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. Jesus begins this way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is important that we start off just this way. Jesus is dealing in a context where there's a lot of accusation that he's come here and he's upsetting the He's upsetting the the Jewish tradition, the Jewish law, that that he's coming in, nice, mild, meek Jesus, and he's saying, just love everybody and don't worry about all that other stuff. And he's being sort of accused of disobeying or disregarding the ways of old, the traditions of of the Jewish um, people. The law and the prophets that Jesus referred to, really all that means is the Old Testament as we understand it. When he says all the law and the prophets, he means the Old Testament. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, let me help you understand the law and what it's for. You see, it's not only the prophets that prophesied. The law prophesied as well. And it all pointed toward one thing. In fact, it pointed toward one person. It pointed toward Jesus I am the fulfillment of the law, he says. It points toward me and life in this eternal kingdom. And when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, his point was not that all the Old Testament must be observed as it's always been. That wasn't his point. Although he didn't abolish it, he didn't throw it out. He didn't stop in that moment to tell them which laws were okay and which laws weren't. His point was that all of it, in one way or another, pointed toward him. And so this week, um, some, I had some great phone calls. And, and we love when you do this. Uh, some of our community group leaders called me this week because they knew I was preaching. And so they asked for some insight into these passages because they're very challenging and convicting. And, and then Jesus says, well, I don't, I'm not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to go back and, and, and prepare my food a certain way and, and, and deal with mold a certain way and stone my contemptuous children? I think some people were looking for a little coverage on that one. Um, <laughs> Am I supposed to do all that? Is that what Jesus is saying? And I love that you did that. And by the way, I encourage all you community group leaders, whenever you want to help um, get into and understand a passage, shoot us an email, give us a phone call. And really that applies to any of you. Shoot us an email if you've got a question. If we can if we can answer it, we will. But uh, I love where that's coming. But here's the deal. If you get lost in discerning which Old Testament laws you must follow and which you're free to ignore, then you miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. The better question is, how does that law point toward Jesus? Who he is and what he's accomplishing in the world. As I study the Old Testament, which is very complex in in certain ways, how does it point toward Jesus and what he's accomplishing in the world? What is the truth that the law reveals? Because here's the thing. Jesus Christ is the point of the Bible. The Bible, as complicated as it might seem to you, as difficult as it might seem, maybe you, you open up that thing and you just get lost in it, and you find yourself in Leviticus, and there's all these weird instructions about things, and you know, you look at it as, as maybe this complex sort of a treasure chest of, of of wise sayings and fairy tales with good morals. Uh, and all these kinds of things, and maybe you just get lost in it, in the poems and, and, and all the archaic language that you maybe run across sometimes. But the reality is that the Bible is one story. It's one story that goes like this. There was a king. And he lived with his people in all of his glory and all of his fullness. And they experienced the joy of that beauty. But then they decided to become kings for themselves and build their own kingdom. So the king departed with his glory. And they were left to fend for themselves. In their own pursuit of the God within them. And years and years and years and years and years went by. And they were left with a question. Would the king ever return? And after years and years and years, after their pursuit of their own kingdoms had crumbled in ruins around them and they found themselves enslaved, the king came back. And he dwelt with them in their wanderings. He met with them in the desert. He instructed them to build a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was a place where he would dwell. And guess what? It was a perfect cube. Just like the garden. And he dwelt with them in the desert. But he said, it's not good for me to be in a desert. And what he was saying was, it's not good for you to be in a desert. Build me a house. And they built him a temple. And in that temple was a holy of holies. And that holy of holies was what shape? It was a cube just like the garden. And God dwelt there among his people until they rebelled and he departed again. And then came a little Jewish man, a strange little fellow who had this bizarre claim. He said, I am the temple. I am the dwelling place of God. If you know me, then you know the father, you know God, you know the king. And that little man, that most unlikely of heroes, walked through this life living in perfect obedience to the Father, to the King. And suffering and sacrificing to the point of death for his subjects, those who would persecute him. And the day that he died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelt from sinful people because they couldn't dwell together was torn down the middle. And not one but two things happened when that happened. We tend to, to, to remember that when that curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn apart, that it allowed us access to the Father, that it allowed us to go into his presence because of Christ and his work. But a second thing happened. God went out. He became at large in the world again. And where? Where did he become at large? In the hearts of his people. Jesus said that God doesn't dwell in houses built by men or on, top, on mountaintops. He dwells in the hearts of people. He dwells in spirit and in truth. You are his temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says. And the king comes and his glory returns. And he continues his battles and fights the skirmishes. But we know that victory is assured And that the new city is being built as we speak. It's the greatest story ever told. J.R.R. Tolkien, who's, by the way, whose last story was called The Return of the King. J.R.R. Tolkien said that the gospel story is the greatest story. It's the only story. It's the story under every story you've ever loved. Because it's the only story that can truly console you. Because it's the only story that is truly rooted and embedded in absolute truth and in eternity In the eternal mind and heart and will and creative activity of God. So whenever you read the scriptures, know that is what the scriptures are about. In verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, that's the smallest letter and even a part of a letter, will pass away from the law. So Jesus says it's all true and it will all come true. So here's the problem that creates for us in our day, in our age, in our culture, and with our humanity. He quotes the Bible word for word all the time. He never questions it. He never contradicts it. He And and here he explicitly endorses it and all of it. And here's the thing. Jesus knows the scripture better than you ever will. The one that said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He knows the God who said, Jacob, I love and Esau, he hated. The one who told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He knows the horrible judgments cast by God on people and entire nations in the Old Testament. And yet, somehow, this loving little Jewish carpenter says it's all true and it's all going to come true. So we're left to deal with that. He says it's all good. So here's the deal. What Jesus is saying implicitly is, if you have a problem with the Scriptures, the Scriptures are not the problem. If you took a college class or watched a Discovery Channel episode, and that's how you formed your entire impression, interpretation of the Word of God handed down over thousands of years to scores of different authors over generations... The Bible is not the problem, you're the problem. And if you've grown up in the church and the extent of your commitment to the studying of God's word, and by the way, this is cut to the quick for me personally this week, the extent of your commitment, and I'm a pastor, the extent of your commitment to the word has been that which you get taught when you go somewhere where they teach it if it's interesting enough to you, or when you have a problem, you look for verses in the Bible that help you feel better about your problem, then guess what? The scriptures are not searching you that's what they're for. It's not that you are to get through the Bible. It's that the Bible is to get through you. So we make a big deal at the church. We, we, we beg and we plead and we tiptoe around and we, we do things. and We put things on the website and we say, please, for the love of Jesus, study the word. Get in it every day. We have personal worship. Tom gets up here every week and he says, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do. It's because he hopes you do. He hopes you've been in it all week. He hopes you've already come with this passage in your heart and mind. And that you're contemplating and that you're chewing on it. And that as you get stronger and better and more mature and disciplined in your study of God's word, you study more of God's word. The catechism that I had to pass in seminary, the shorter, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, was the Children's Catechism 150 years ago that was taught to little third and fourth graders. Over time, for various reasons, our love for Scripture has been watered down. And it's up to you to return to His Word and let it search you. Let it cut you to the quick. Let it call you out. Let those things come up and say, what's this? Oh yeah, my wife's been bothering me about that. Well, now I'm bothering you about that, says God's Word. So Jesus makes a call to remind us that his word will not pass away. That it's all true. It's all coming true. He calls us to live it out. And you can't live it out if you don't let it get through you. In Deuteronomy 6, it says to imprint it on your hearts. It says to talk about it when you're walking down the road. And when you go into bed, when you wake up in the morning, it says to teach it to your children. Cut to the quick, I'm huddling in the corner. So together we come and we're called to be in his word. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away. Until what? Until all is accomplished. Well, what is accomplished? Until what is accomplished? Well, I'm just going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a, a spoiler alert here. I'm going to jump all the way to the end of time and I'm going to read for you what is accomplished. But as I read it, I want you to take a little mo- meditative moment. I want you to take a little moment and no matter where you are in your life right now, no matter what suffering you might be in, no matter whether your life is going wonderfully or your wife is full of trials and struggles and confusions and busyness, I want to give you a little moment to listen what is being prepared for you. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John, who's been given a vision, sees this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This new and eternal city, this new Jerusalem that descends from heaven to earth in Revelation is perfect. And guess what the shape is? It's a perfect cube, just like the garden. The king returns in all of his glory for you. That's what's being accomplished through God's word. And none of it will fall away until we live in that world. And that's why you can have the courage to live in this one like you live in that one because you know it's coming. And you know that you risk nothing by living eternally in a world that will fade away. That is our hope. And so Jesus says this about the law and the prophets. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes, this is verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them... And teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are about doing religion, if you are about being a Christian, which means how many things you check off the list that you do and how many things you volunteered for and and how many Bible studies you go to and, and whether you cuss or not and all these kind of, you got all these rules. you got your own set of rules around the laws so that you don't break them by accident. If that's what it amounts to, Jesus says that that's not good enough to get to heaven. That's not a righteousness that gets you to heaven. And then he goes about describing what true righteousness looks like and what's at the root of the law. So Jesus gives a fundamental principle with six examples to illustrate it. So here's the principle. Life in the kingdom of heaven as it can be lived right now Life in the kingdom of heaven is marked by a selfless and loving attitude of the heart that leads to something. It leads to loving and redemptive action. Life in the kingdom is motivated by a selfless and loving attitude of the heart that leads to loving and redemptive action. And then he goes about ticking off. Some of the big hot buttons of the day, they're the same as ours. they the same things we live with. Starts with anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and then he rattles off three things. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, a word maybe in your version says raka, it means you nobody, will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now he's not teaching a gradation of sin. Okay, if I'm angry, I get the judge, the counsel, you know. And if I if I say you fool, or if I say you nobody, or then I get the counsel. Um, and so he, he he's not giving you grades of sin. What he's doing is he's throwing you three whammies, three examples, and he's giving you three judgments. He's saying you think that the only way you would ever have to be accountable to God, is if you shed someone's blood. You think that the only way you'd ever have to be accountable to God, uh, you you think the only way you'd you'd appear before the council uh, in this world is if you committed murder. But I'm here to tell you, if you harbor anger in your heart, if that anger manifests itself in one of two things, one, dismissal, you know, You ever do that? You're angry at somebody, so what do you do? You write them out of your life. I just won't think about that person anymore. They become an object. They become a functionary that I can eliminate. And that's my punishment. That's my bitterness and how it manifests. I'll just cut them off. Or even if you're just indifferent, a form of anger is indifference. A lack of love is indifference. I look through somebody, the cashier, who's a functionary, and if they don't get it right... They're not human to me. They're supposed to be providing a service. And I get angry at them. So dismissal. And then attack. Destruction. One says, you nobody. The other one says, you fool. You idiot. And you know what? You want them to believe that. You want those words to come out of your mouth and convince that person that they are a moron. Jesus says... Therein lies the root of murder. We're not talking about quality. We're talking about quantity. But the murderous act, it might not end in shedding blood, that's just as accountable to God, just as abhorrent in His sight, begins in the heart. Begins with anger. In the kingdom of heaven... You divest yourself of anger and indifference. Let me say that again. In the kingdom of heaven, you divest yourself of anger and indifference. Not only must you let go of your anger, you must seek reconciliation. And not just if you've wronged somebody. In Matthew 18, it says, if they've wronged you before you go to the altar, seek reconciliation. It says, be about loving people the way Christ loves you, unconditionally, Hoping for your best. The one who could stand before his accusers, hanging on a cross, and in that moment say, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. In all of life, he says, you walk through it that way. Now, are there exceptions? The scriptures warn against trying to go and reconcile with a fool. There's, a, there's an AA step that says that you make, you, you make amends unless it'll, it'll cause more harm than good. There's certainly an exception and a the principle there. But, and is there ever a time when the loving thing to do is to confront someone's sin? Yes, of course. When, it's, when they're hurting themselves, when they're when they're in danger to the weak people around them, when, when there's an injustice being done, the loving thing to do is to go to that person and to seek to confront the wrong for their own benefit, for the benefit of the weak, for the benefit of, of justice. But until you have divested yourself of anger and bitterness and the right to resent, you cannot go. That's life in the kingdom, leaving me huddled in the corner. Okay, another lightweight one here, lust. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust... Uh, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is a 10 sermons. I'm going to give you one statement. In the kingdom of heaven, you see women and men first... As human beings. Precious children of God, created in His image, pledged for His purposes, perhaps even saved for someone else. That cannot exist, cannot coexist with a self-absorbed, self-consuming, objectifying for your own selfish ends cannot exist together. Now, this is a struggle. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who struggle with this and people who lie about struggling with this. <laughs> At least for men. So I don't want to say this lightly enough. Jesus talks about this poke the eye out, cut the hand off thing. All right. The eye is the thing through which you let the lust come and the hand is the thing with which you steal that which is not yours. And there have been some crazy people in history who have poked out their eyes and cut their hands off and all kinds of things. That's not the point. The point is, don't settle. Deal with your sin drastically because it has no place in the kingdom of heaven. It's not beautiful. Now, this is a struggle that I've had in particular. I'm not going to go into my whole story, but I'm going to give you one very specific thing because it's something I hear That my wife heard one time. Hey, I don't know what your problem is. Just looking at the catalog. Heard that from the wife of an elder at a church. You need to get off his back. He didn't make a purchase. Do I really see that kind of thinking in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem? Is that really the way it's going to be? Just looking at the catalog. Let's just see how far we can get away with it. So on this one, I'm just going to say to my brothers and to my sisters who have a different set of lust issues, deal drastically with your sin. Use your community. Get accountable. Talk about it. Don't just keep cutting yourself slack into oblivion because this line just keeps sliding in our culture and it's eating us alive because it's stealing from us. That beautiful and sacred identity that is the image of God in us. And that's not what we are anymore. We're just images and things and objects of our pleasure. It's not good. He follows with adultery and he speaks of divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh my gosh. I didn't even want, I wanted to skip this one. Maybe they won't notice. I've heard that there are some divorces that occasionally happen in our culture, like half the time. That's the statistic, half the time, and... The good news is it's different in the church. It's 1% less than half the time. There's a lot going on here, and it's another sermon, but I will tell you that statement is taken from a commentary on Deuteronomy 24. A certificate of divorce was required for a man to put his wife out for indecency, but it never really specified what indecency was. And so um, uh, uh, rabbis and scribes, or people, uh, interpreters of the law, would define what indecency was. And in time, it became so ridiculous that indecency, literally, according to one rabbi, was if your wife accidentally burned dinner. You could put her out. And in Deuteronomy, it required a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, the New Testament says, that God was patient with the Israelites, but the divorce was never his intention. Malachi says he hates divorce. He was patient with them and he was putting a boundary, he was putting a restriction on their ability to divorce and he was declaring marriage sacred by saying, if you send this woman off and you have, you have to give her rights, you have to give her a certificate of divorce and you may not remarry her if she remarries again and then divorces because there was a little game going on here. And it was like this, one of the ways that you could get out of debt is you could sell your wife, but you couldn't be married to her when you sold her. So you had a, you had a legitimate reason to divorce her and then you could sell her to pay off your debt. And then when things got back on your feet again, you could buy her back. Women, do, ladies, does that make you feel good? Hey, babe, it's just a little thing we're working out. When we get it straightened out, you're my girl. I love you. But that's a little bit of what, what, it, of what this had, had turned into. It was ridiculous. And, and Jesus turns around and he says, no. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. What he's saying is he's rooting, and he does this in Matthew 19, he's rooting marriage in the creation order. In Matthew 19, they're asking him about certificates of divorce and he takes them back to creation and he says, and a man will leave his wife, or he's leave his mother and father and he will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. There is nothing more unnatural than ripping apart a person. There's nothing more horrifying than that. He takes them back to that passage and he says, this is what God thinks of divorce. It's not possible. It's preposterous to rip someone apart. And then he says something that he probably all of you who are married heard at your wedding. And what God has joined together Let no one tear asunder. Now, I'm sitting in front of people that, statistically speaking, have been divorced. Maybe you're getting divorced. You're sitting here going, you don't know what to do with this. Or maybe you're frustrated by what I'm saying. But here's what I will say. The grace of God through Jesus Christ is bigger than any of that stuff. But what Christ is calling you to do here is not be condemned and not dwell in the misery of sin or the complexities of that issue, but is it just simply he's saying in the kingdom of heaven, this is what marriage is. And it's beautiful. And divorce doesn't make sense in that world. So tread lightly, walk carefully, think deeply before you enter into a marriage. And when you're in it, be in it the way Jesus is in it with you selfless, unconditional, I will never give up love. That's how he's in it with you. And that's what Paul compares it to in Ephesians 5. Okay, we're going to move through these last few quickly. Oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, the last time, if you've ever bought a house. 57 pages of documents to buy a house, little bitty fine print. That's what he's talking about here. Do you know why it used to take one page to buy a house, and now it takes 57 pages to buy a house? And think of all of you who are in business, or if you've ever had to deal with contracts, you know what I'm talking about. It's because of all the people who all the time are finding loopholes where they can make an oath that doesn't really stick. And so we have to create layer after layer after layer after layer after layer after layer of rules to keep them from deceiving and cheating us. And then, even worse, we get sucked into the game. And instead of asking, is it right or wrong, what's my yes and what's my no, we go, can I get away with it? Because they would do the same. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. And so he simply says this. Why don't you just try this? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That doesn't just apply to complex business dealings. Think about timeliness. This is a struggle for me. You tell somebody you're going to be there at five o'clock. That's my yes. Usually my no. Promises to your wife or your kids, your husband. That you see it, you know that it'll lift them up when you say it, but in the back of your mind, you pretty much know, oh, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. All those little things. Of course, there are exceptions in the Bible about truthfulness. The concubines, or the concubines, the, uh, the, the midwives that, that lied to the Pharaoh and didn't kill all the firstborn children in Egypt, they were held, heralded as heroes. Why? Because there was an evil so great that they had forfeited the right to the truth. So you have to be very careful with that. Retaliation. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now this is very rich and there's a lot going on, but I'm going to just make it real simple. Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, you forfeit your rights. You forfeit your rights to retaliation and anger. Remember we talked about anger already. You see, when, when a Jew, when, in, in that time, when they would walk to greet each other, you would turn your right cheek to receive a kiss. And if this person wanted to put you down or insult you, or if they were angry with you, instead of kissing you, they'd backhanded slap you. And what Jesus says is that the attitude of the heart, the love of the heart in the kingdom, the one that says forgive them for they know not what they do, is so quick to let go of the right to retaliate that he turns his other cheek as well. That moment, that attitude and moment, you instantly forgive. You instantly move on. And if someone makes a demand of you, You retaliate with a tender and giving heart. The deal was that the tunic was something you could sue for. You could claim it. You could get in a dispute and say, I want his tunic. And they'd have to give up their tunic. But your cloak was something that was considered yours by inalienable right. So he says, if they sue you for your tunic, you give them your cloak as well. That's life in the new kingdom. That's the way we're called to live even if it costs us. Now again, is there an exception? The exception is only this. Sometimes you have to confront and stop for the sake of the person that's abusing you or for the sake of the people around them. But nonetheless, that's the attitude. Last one is a summary of all of the above. Love your enemies. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore, and here it comes, the dagger in the heart, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He gives the ultimate and distinguishing quality and character of the kingdom of heaven. Love not only your friends but your enemies. And don't just love them by not hating them. That's not possible. Pray for those who persecute you. This is what it means to live in this life as though we're living for eternity. Jesus summarized this section with a principle that undergirds all the rest, and that is that you replace hate, replace hate with love. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So here we are, left with nowhere to hide. We're cornered by the deepest corruptions of our hearts. We read these and we realize what? We realize that every single one of us is a murderer, an adulterer, by nature, enemies of each other. And Jesus has done it again. Remember how he started and he said he was the fulfillment of the law? What's the purpose of the law? To drive us to Jesus. And what has he just done? As he describes what true faithfulness is. He's driven us to him. He's preached to us the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he's called us to be perfect like God is perfect. And he says that to the Pharisees who think that following all these rules has made them perfect. And he's just cut them to the quick. And he said, "All right, you want to be perfect? Do that. Because you can't do that apart from me. So I want to leave you with this today. So what are you about? And what are you becoming? Remember in humility where you've been. Don't get stuck there. Look at what Jesus has done for you. And then imagine, imagine, imagine what you are going to become. And take courage to live in this dying world as one who will live forever without fear.